In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, Grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah, Look, I am going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord, make his path straight. And so it was that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him. And as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. John wore a garment of camel skin, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. In the course of his preaching, he said, Someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So these are literally the first words of the Gospel of St. Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how Mark begins his Gospel. And, and we really start fresh at the beginning. Advent is the season of the beginning. So we are right there with St. Mark. And it feels a bit strange because last Sunday, which was the first Sunday of Advent, it was really the end. It was talking about the end of time, the the last coming, uh, staying awake for that last coming. But here it really is the beginning. So we, we have this movement of back and forth between end and beginning, which marks the, the new year. So these are the first words and they happen in the wilderness. The first words in uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, this reminds us of the first word of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. But here creation has already happened and we're in the wilderness. Twice, the, in the quote of Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness and then, and so it was that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Now the wilderness was never meant to be at creation. At creation we have the garden immediately no wilderness, everything is beautiful, everything flourishes, uh, there is life and there is growth. And here is the wilderness which is, as it were, the state of things after sin. And yet the wilderness where there is nothing to do but listen to John the Baptist. And the wilderness is a place of encounter. And so the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ happens in the wilderness where no other focus is given, but which is still the inherited place of barrenness, the desert. We're in a world that has been marked by sin, 
And yet we have the beginning of the good news, something good and something new, which is happening here in the very place where we messed up with sin. We, ha we are in the wilderness of Judah, not far from Jerusalem, and we are by the Jordan. So we're in the place that historically a lot of things happened in. First of all, it's the spot about Jericho, really. That's the wilderness of Judah, between Jericho and Jerusalem. And it's the spot where Joshua led Israel into the Promised Land when, when they, they crossed the Jordan at the beginning of the book of Joshua, where they uh, marched around the city of Jericho, the wall fell down. And Joshua, of course, is the same name as Jesus. Joshua Jesus is the, exactly the same name. And here in that wilderness is the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ, this new Joshua in the wilderness of Judah coming in to, again, lead his people into the promised land, not a physical land, but the, the presence of God, the, the country, the promised state for which we are made originally. It's also the place, the wilderness of Judah by the Jordan is the place where Elijah was taken up to heaven. And we have here John the Baptist the last of the prophets who remind us of Elijah in many ways and we'll, we'll look at the ways in which he reminds us of Elijah. So that place of the wilderness is both the place of, of facing the state of barrenness of sin and also being prepared for the, a new encounter with God. And this is what precisely the mission of John the Baptist consists in in the wilderness. It's before the public ministry of Jesus, so this new Joshua hasn't yet stepped in to conquer his land, but his messenger is there proclaiming his arrival. Someone is coming after me. And there's a double introduction in, in that passage, in that gospel. First of all, a, a line of introduction of the gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, that's Mark talking to us. And then the introduction by John the Baptist of Jesus Christ. So everyone is introducing each other. Mark is introducing the good news about Jesus Christ. John is introducing the one who is to come. And yet John is being introduced by the scripture. So there's a whole layers of introductions and references to the past because we begin in the Gospel of St. Mark with a quote as it says here from the prophet Isaiah, but actually there's more than Isaiah in that quote. Look, I'm going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. That's uh, actually those. the first sentence is not strictly speaking from Isaiah. It's uh, from Malachi and even further back, it's from Exodus. In that quote that begins the gospel, we have three references. First of all, uh, Malachi 3, 1 to 5. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. That's literally the words that are used by St. Mark. But those literal words in Malachi are an echo of Exodus 23, 20. Behold, I send an angel before you. And the angel, the word angel, is messenger. It's the same word. So... 
This is this quote from Exodus Malachi and then suddenly we have the quote from the prophet Isaiah, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You can see the words that come beforehand in Isaiah 40, 1 and 2 are not the words that are quoted in St. Mark. And yet in Isaiah we have another echo of Mark in the word good news, Evangelion, the good news is, is precisely what Isaiah is talking about in slightly later on in the same chapter, chapter 40, uh, Isaiah 40, 9 to 11, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. But this is in the feminine and it's about Zion in the feminine messenger of the good news. It's exactly the same thing, the messenger of the good news. It's the only time that good news appears in the Old Testament as good news. So the one who evangelizes before is Jerusalem Zion, who is evangelizing Judah and further than Judah, anyone who's interested, really, your God is coming. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. And now the good news is announced by John the Baptist to the same people of Judah, uh, not far from Jerusalem in the wilderness. So that's, if you want, a little bit of the context. And who is it? that we have with us. So we have Mark who introduces his gospel, John who introduces Jesus, John speaks, and it seems that what he says has a universal impact. It seems everyone is touched by his word. And in fact, John, as we know from Josephus, who was a, a Jewish writer who was not Christian at all, was very famous. He was a very, very famous figure at the time and it was recorded that people flocked to him but Mark really goes to town with this and he says uh, all Judea and all the people of Jerusalem make their way to him there's a sort of universality about the message of John it's for everyone admittedly with all Ju Judea and all the people of Jerusalem we still have the good news confined to Israel still and yet in in Luke uh, we have people such as the Roman soldiers going to John to ask, what shall we do to repent? So it's even open to the pagans. Everyone is involved. Everyone is concerned by the good news. So we have a little hint here of the universality of the impact of the good news. Now, it's a bit paradoxical, it seems, in the text to begin something so good with uh, reminding ourselves that we're so bad by calling us for repentance, where the speech of John the Baptist is, is slightly grating and his figure as this uh, penitential man who lives on nothing and dresses badly and lives in the desert is not really appealing to our uh, comfort-minded uh, lives. So... What can we make of this good news here? It has to do as well with um, some sort of confrontation of sin. Why is it good? Because here for the first time in human history, sin can be con properly confronted and will be dealt with. And God will prevail. Goodness will prevail. Truth will prevail. So here is the end of sin, if you want. And that's why it's being confronted in the best possible manner through repentance um, the slavery is over 
And that's the good news. And so it begins with this entering this great movement of God who comes to us so that we are unable to come to him. We are made able to come to him. The slavery of sin is over. But this begins in the human heart with this movement of conversion, of repentance, of opening ourselves to the good news that has the power to cast away the darkness. So John is there and fulfills his mission by baptizing as a sign of repentance and so preparing for the coming of the Son of God. And this is where Mark talks about the Son of God in the first line. And after that, very rarely, uh, uh, the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. So this text is bracketed by the Son and the Spirit. We, we have a very strong presence of the Holy Trinity. Even if it's slightly hidden, it is present. God is here. And he, the Father sends the Son because having a Son implies having a Father and the Holy Spirit. So this is about what God is doing. And it involves human activity of repentance, but it's primarily in the bracketing of the text, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit. This is what God is doing. And John is sent. I am going to send my messenger before you. And so it was that John the Baptist appeared. He appears not of his own initiative, but he is literally sent, which is what messenger is about, what the angel is about, someone who is sent with a message by God. So God has the initiative. It is his decision, his action to step into human history, to step into that spot of the wilderness through the words of John and to bring people back to himself, as it were. Right, so we have the scene is set, and I've talked about it quite a bit already. It is the beginning of the good news, which is wonderful because we don't know when this is going to end, and I'm going to talk about that later on. But here, if for the first time in human history, we can say that something is absolutely, utterly good. There is something absolutely utterly new and this is really how we understand the incarnation the incarnation in in our understanding in our christian understanding is the fundamental event that changes everything that reverses a bad situation into a good one and not just into a nice one or a fairly good one but into an absolutely good one the incarnation makes the most amazing wonderful thing out of a fairly bad thing not that we're bad we're good but we really end up destroying ourselves through sin which is our experience and even if we may feel good about ourselves we just have to open the newspaper or the internet to see that but here for the first time steps into the world something or rather someone who is utterly and absolutely good and not only good for himself but good for us here is hope coming into human history and to this day it is the same hope that we share this has not changed god has come god is coming 
So the beginning of the good news, no, no words like that could have been uttered properly beforehand in the, the Old Testament. And that's probably why the only reference to it is this Isaiah quote, Isaiah 49, Zion herald of the good news, which are being fulfilled now in John the Baptist, who proclaims to Zion the good news. And so with this beginning of the good news of something that is radically, fundamentally, eternally good for humanity, which has begun, uh, and John the Baptist tells us it is begun, as it were, by, by proclaiming the coming of the Lord, we have the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Mark, who is so concise and manages to say so much in so few words, has managed in his first opening quote from the Old Testament to sort of condense and summarize the whole of it. Because by referring to Exodus, by referring to Isaiah, and by referring to Malachi, he spans the whole of the Old Testament. Exodus is right at the beginning. I'm going to send my angel before you. That's Israel in the wilderness. Again, Israel in the wilderness with John. Then Isaiah, the return from exile, this great news of the Lord is coming to save his people. He will bring them back from the wilderness in which they have been left. He will bring them back to Jerusalem. I got another fulfillment in time, but a partial fulfillment, which is now completely um, um, achieved, as it were. And Malachi, the last uh, of, uh, of the prophets recorded in Scripture, who announces the Messiah. I am sending my messenger, and behold, the Lord will enter his temple. So all these three references, because they span the whole of the Old Testament, is or the way that Mark is telling us everything that is written is now fulfilled. And John is telling us about it. And John is telling us it's not fulfilled in himself, it's fulfilled in that coming of someone who is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am. And he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. This is new, this is good. And John fulfills the Old Testament as an Old Testament figure, as it were. He's the last of the Old Testament figure. How do we know that? Because he fits completely the profile of the Old Testament prophet. Now, he's not called a prophet as such expressly, but he is a prophet because he prophesies, he announces, and we record in tradition, we, we record that he's the last of the prophets. So he is that bridge between the old and the new. How do we have those clues that he is sort of a type of an Old Testament prophet? Well, first of all, his clothes. When we have a description of John the Baptist wearing camel hair, so wearing some sort of hair cloth. It fits the description of Elijah the Tishbite. So in 2 Kings 1, 7 to 8, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah is identifiable 
buying what he wears and what he wears looks exactly like what John the Baptist is wearing, a hair cloth, a girdle of leather. And in fact, it was the standard apparently prophet uniform in the Old Testament. That's how you identify the prophet. So it's not just Elijah. Although John, of course, is, is identified with Elijah, even by Jesus himself, who said Elijah did come. So John is a figure of Elijah who was to come bef just before the Messiah and announce the Messiah. But even in Zechariah, so much later on, we have a description of the prophet again. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy mantle in order to deceive but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a tiller of the soil, for the land has been my possession since my youth. So, so you have a, a professional prophet who is in trouble, pretends he's not a prophet, and so to pretend, takes off, his, takes off his prophet attire, which is the hairy mantle. So when John is described as uh, wearing camel hair, that's the prophet, and everybody would have been able to identify him as such. What he eats is interesting because it has huge Old Testament connotations as well. And there's massive works of scholarships being done about trying to understand exactly what it means, this locusts and honey. Uh, di different and very uh, contrary opinions. But perhaps what we could get from it is, first of all, the sweetness of the honey. The honey uh, features quite a lot in the Old Testament, especially in the psalm. So, for example, we have Psalm 119. How sweet are thy words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. So the words are like honey, and perhaps the, the words of John the Baptist would be like honey, insofar as he proclaims the coming of the one that everyone has been waiting for, the one who really is the good news, the, this new and wonderful presence of God, Messiah, who has finally come to save his people. And we have this as well in Ezekiel. Again, a prophet, again, the one who has to speak words, the word of God. Son of man, eat what is offered to you. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it. It was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So the sweetness of the word of God that John is entrusted with to proclaim. But the locusts, what would they be? First of all, the locusts tell us John is actually fulfilling the law absolutely. And we know that, you know, he, he got... Um, killed in the end because he was trying to uh, remind Herod of the law and Herod didn't quite like that and certainly his brother's wife whom he had married really didn't like that. So John is a, a man faithful to the law, faithful absolutely to the word of God as it is spoken in the Old Testament which Jesus himself fulfills but he's the man of the Old Testament and so the insect that he eats is the only insect that is allowed to be eaten in the Old Testament uh, because insects are forbidden. So we have Leviticus 11, 20 to 23. All winged insects that go upon all fours are an abomination to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those which have legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. Of them you may eat the locusts. 
according to its kind, and so on and so forth. So this is a, a strange little passage, but this it's just a little clue to tell us how faithful John was, because he, he definitely didn't have much to eat if it was just honey and locust. But that's where he is faithful to the law. He's just eating the insect that is allowed. But also the locust, of course, has a, a really bad connotation insofar as it's one of the plagues. And so it's a punishment for sin, as it were. Uh, in Exodus 10, we have the plagues. And one of the plagues is to bring locusts. And locusts are bad. And so there is a sense in which as much as honey is the good and is the sweetness of the word of God, the locust coming into the mouth of John and so therefore to somewhat with that connotation of the mouth, John speaks words that are also difficult to hear, that confront sin and that proclaim a punishment for sin which we know John did and does uh, certainly in the other Gospels uh, a more f in a more fierce way than in Mark. John has to preach the good and the bad because they're both sides of the same coin. When the absolute and utter goodness of God comes into the world, evil is confronted wherever it is, however small it is, and evil's... Uh, the place of confrontation of evil is the human heart. And that's why the call to repentance is absolutely inevitable if the good news is to be taken seriously and to be enjoyed and to be lived, to be received. So we can understand John to be a sort of an angel insofar as he's a messenger. Of course, he's a human being, but he acts like an angel. He's not married. He lives alone in the desert. He's a sort of different it really is different and he brings the the word of god he's a prophet of old he, he, he fits all the old testament sort of features of the prophet but really what i i like to think of john as is a matchmaker because john is precisely is he's talked about as the friend of the bridegroom in the gospel of saint john but John the Baptist is the one who brings together the bridegroom who comes and is not still yet there and the bride. And to the bride, that's the bride is the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, everyone who listens to him, who is the bride of God in the wilderness. Again, that's an, a, an Old Testament theme. And suddenly the Song of Song makes a, a really explicit depiction of the relationship of God and his people as bride and bridegroom. But here John is bringing the two together. He's announcing the bridegroom is coming. This is who you're going to espouse. You've got to get ready. And so the preaching of John can be understood in terms of make yourself beautiful. You've got to make yourself presentable because this is the one who is going to espouse you, is the one who is going to marry you, is, the, is your bridegroom coming in, no other than God himself. Um, so you have to get yourself ready to meet him. And when we understand the call to conversion in that sense of entering into this profound relationship of eternal, exclusive, absolute love with God, then the call of repentance makes complete sense and it, it shouldn't never be 
heard as something really harsh and punitive. It's not a sentence, it's a call. It's a call to change because now for the first time it is possible to change. It is worth changing because something new and something good has come. So that's John and and so from his preaching we have an awful lot about about God insofar as he's announced in both the words and the life of John. God is the one who is worth living for in the wilderness. God is the one who, when we have him, we may be deprived of normal food and normal clothes and everything that makes human life nice and good. But when we have him, we have the ultimate good. And insofar as the wilderness then is the place of encounter because precisely we divest ourselves of everything that is not God and John is the perfect embodiment of that, telling us here it is, this is what you need to pay attention to, this is what you need to change your life for, this is the coming of God, he wants to meet you, he's there for you, will you be there for him? And that God who comes is Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ the Son of God, Mark is very explicit in the beginning in that first sentence, Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now. That's a sentence that will be repeated right at the end of his gospel in 1533 to 39. You have the death of Jesus. The moment when Jesus looks the least like God because he's on the cross, crucified, and he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies, and, and it's at that moment... Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And so the gospel of St. Mark is bracketed on either side with this proclamation from Mark and this proclamation from this pagan centurion. This is the son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, God with us. So the Son of God, who is the face of God? Now, in the text, we see that in the prophecy. Because look, I am going to send my messenger before you. It is literally, I'm going to send my messenger before your face, or before my face, if you want. I'm going to send my messenger before my face, he will prepare your way. So Jesus is the face of God. And literally, he is, through his, the, the incarnation, God cannot be seen. God doesn't have a human face in himself and, you know, before the incarnation. In Jesus, God has a human face. We can see God when we see Jesus. And that's why we... we God who cannot be painted and depicted in any way because every way that we can depict God would limit him and, and make him a creature. In Jesus, we can paint him as much as we want because God has made himself a creature, as it were. His human nature is created. But in his one person, he unites both human and divine natures, created and uncreated. And because he assumes fully our human nature, he can be depicted 
He can be, you know, and we can make movies about him. So there is something tangible now about God. I will send my messenger before my face. Jesus is the face of the Father. He reveals the Father through his humanity. And his sacred humanity is the only way that we have to God. A way that is absolutely uh, faithful, that we can put all our trust in. In fact, the only way that we can put our trust in, insofar as we can make ourselves ideas and concepts about God. But here we have the reality of God in front of us, talking to us with the human words and telling us divine realities in a way that we sort of try to understand as well. Um, so, and what does God do? He makes his own way and he walks his own path. There's a sense in which we don't, we prepare the way, but he takes his way, he takes his path, he chooses to come. He's the first one who has the initiative. So he might choose to come uh, in, in the bumpy situations of humanity, but that's the way he chooses to take. He chooses to come in uh, Galilee, in Judea, at this time when John the Baptist is there. He chooses to come in the way, in the moral sense, today into my life. But that's his ways and his paths. Before they are our own, it's his. This is what he chooses to do. And the way that we prepare, we prepare his ways and we prepare his paths. We don't prepare our own. There's a whole sense of the initiative of God who comes to save. Because he's the one whose sandal John says is not worthy to undo, John puts himself in the, in the situation of a slave uh, in that image. And Jesus is the master who comes. Now, John would be quite a revered figure. So when John says these words, if everybody was flocking to listen to him, he would be considered as a rabbi, as a master. But here he clearly, through this image, takes the position of a slave and talks about the one who is to come as the master, but also, of course, as the bridegroom in that image of this matchmaking, this preparation, the friend of the bridegroom. And because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, he is God. As it were, if he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which is the sign that John gives us of his superiority, because the baptism of John would be just a symbol without effect, because the grace of Christ hasn't yet come. So it's just a token of, yes, I want to change, and here I put some water on myself to change. Our baptism is entirely different even though it does look the same because we still use water. But our baptism is one with the Holy Spirit, which means that our baptism is effective. It causes the life of God in us, as it were. So now anyone who baptizes with the Holy Spirit receives that gift from the one who is the Lord, um, as it were, it's only God who can baptize with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. And so anyone who has the Holy Spirit at his command, is, as he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, is God. So there's another hint of the divinity of, of the one who is to come here as well. If we can have the power in the church to baptize with the Holy Spirit, it's because that power has been entrusted to us, but it does not belong to us. And doesn't even—it's not a power that is even owned by the church. It's the power of God who 
sort of submits himself to the means and ways in which he gives us his life in the sacraments. So that's a revelation of the divinity of Jesus. And of course, when he, he turns up and he, he's human and he's just a normal person from Nazareth, then it's a big shock. And it's equally hard to some extent to accept both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus because both of them are so shocking. We can't quite put them together. It's very hard to hold on to both absolutely fully together. But this is precisely the way and the path in which God has come into the world. Now, for us, we have to prepare his way and strengthen and straighten his path. What does it mean? That's precisely the whole movement of the moral life, which is to make ourselves available to his presence and his coming. The movement of God comes first. There is no ways and there is no paths if, it's, if, it's, if, if these are not his own that he chooses to take. And the ways and the paths that he chooses to walk are inside of us. He chooses to make his home with us. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. This is the way he wants to take. He comes right into humanity, into human history. He comes right into human life. He comes right into every human heart where he can find a place where someone has prepared, someone is opening the door, someone is removing all the obstacles. So the moral life can be understood in that sense of making constantly a way for the Lord so that he can come and be the good news of my life. Because the good news of my life is not myself and my talents and my great, wonderful person. The good news of my life is that Jesus is in my life. Jesus who is good and brings every day something new to my life is here and wants to come in. And my response to him is to make myself available to him. And that will depend because there is this great uh, fight between the, the availability that I give over to sin to my own disordered attractions and how I fill my life with those things or the avail availability that I give the Lord and it's going to be one or the other and it's going to be a constant fight and that's why when John the Baptist calls people to come and repent for their sins he's asking them to make themselves available to something so good which they might miss if they don't enter into that movement of conversion, of turning round, of leaving behind disordered attractions and enslavements to something, or rather to someone, for someone for whom they are made and for whom they should be supremely available. And in some way, John's life in the desert is a living picture of what it is to be completely available to the Lord, to have nothing but him. That's a model, if you want, for us all. And of course, it doesn't mean that literally we have to be in a desert uh, with camel hair on our back. But it means that our hearts should be somehow places of wilderness, of being empty of those attractions that are disordered, being empty of those attachments that drive us down, take us down, and being emptied of those refusal and rejections to love uh, and to pursue selfish 
pursuits. So that being freed of all that, we are available for the presence of the Lord who comes. And because at the heart of the good news of St. Mark here, the good news of, about Jesus Christ, why is it good? Why is it new? Because for the first time, it is possible for the human person to, to change entirely. What God brings into the world, what God brings to humanity in Jesus, is the possibility of holiness. What do I mean by holiness? By holiness, we should really beware of thinking about holiness as, as a pursuit that we make on our own, as a self-improvement. A person who is good in every aspect of their life, but achieves that on their own. That is not holiness. Holiness is to be the bride of the bridegroom. Now, regardless of... Uh, this is much beyond sexuality, but it, it's, it's, it's being in that relationship of spousal love with God, which is a relationship that each one of us is called to enter into, so that he's the one. Because the moral life in our Christian understanding cannot be detached from the person of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to understand and to live the moral life to be good outside of this relationship with Jesus Christ, as, as far as Christianity is con concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't good people in the world. That's not what I mean at all. And that doesn't mean neither that there are not objective standards to morality that are universal. Absolutely, it's true. But holiness, the sort of goodness for which we are made, is not within our reach because of the sinful condition in which we are. It is not within our reach, not to the degree that we want it, not to the degree that we are made for. Because this holiness that we want and pursue is nothing else than the perfection of love. And love can only be lived and be experienced and be entered into and be done, because love is something we do in a relationship and perhaps it's from our human experience where we see someone utterly transformed by love you know someone who falls in love with another person is transformed by love and that's precisely what john the baptist is trying to tell us here that love is coming to transform us and so we have to be ready to receive that love so we don't become good in order to make ourselves good for Christ and, and, and that's how we're good and whether he comes or not, we, we have to repent anyway. No, this call to repentance is really a preparation for the greater good of being with him. Morality can only be properly uh, pursued as a pursuit of Jesus. And in fact, the, co the command that Jesus gives us, as it were, of course, is to love, love the double commandment of, of perfect love of God and, and our neighbor. But the first thing he asks of us is not, you know, literally when, when he begins to speak, the first thing that he says is, follow me, follow me. 
And in order to be ready to follow him, there has to be an emptying, which is what John the Baptist is doing. And we see that very clearly in the Gospel of St. John, where the preaching of John the Baptist and the call of the apostles are linked together in the first chapter. So John preaches, as it were, he has disciples who listen to his preaching and suddenly Jesus arrives. This is the Lamb of God. They, they follow him immediately on the words of John the Baptist because being good is not something to be pursued for oneself. Being good is something to be experienced in that relationship with the Lord who makes us good, who makes us good through his love. And our response of love helps us to pursue that good to the end if you want. I hope that makes sense. So with the Gospel of St. Mark, Yes, we can change because we can be changed by love who comes to us in God, in Jesus. And that's a new beginning for morality where we completely escape, as it were, the rule and regulations that we have to follow on our own. That can't be done when morality is to be lived at least with God. And then it opens up to the neighbor. But receiving and leaving that relationship transforms us and that's the beginning of something new and something good, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, quickly, the church is precisely what happens next. When we have in the Gospel of St. Mark the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that never ends. At the end of his Gospel, St. Mark doesn't say, now this is the end of the good news. What is the end of the good news? It's the second coming of Christ when the bride is revealed and the bride is, you know, comes down from heaven. So that's the vision of St. John in, um, in Revelation. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is it. That's the end. But that's already what John is doing at the beginning. He's preparing the bride for her husband. Now... The end of the good news of Jesus Christ happens also with me and and it's it to, to, to some extent it's going to be the day of my death which will reveal my relationship, my, my spousal relationship with Jesus Christ will be revealed at that moment. Am I his or not? Am I his or am I mine, as it were? Am I refusing to love or am I accepting love? That moment of entry into you know, eternity. That's the end of the good news for me, which means that the good news which started by the wilderness with John the Baptist 2,000 years ago is continuing. The good news is constantly making uh, progress, as it were, changing. And, and, and the, the whole history of the church, especially in her saints, fundamentally in her saints, is... The continuation of the good news. The good news is lived. The good news is experienced today. The good news is experienced in my life. The good news is experienced every time precisely I return to the Lord, every time I make myself available to Him, every time I um, turn a away from my inability to love and open myself to receive His love that enables me to love every time I open myself to him to be transformed by love. So the first moral act is to receive 
the love that makes us good is to turn to God if you want. That's the beginning of morality is to follow Jesus Christ in the Christian perspective of that's why John the Baptist is telling us this message that is coming. That's why it is so important because it's only with him that anything good can happen. And and so much is at stake on that. That's what we need. We mean when we say he's the savior, he brings salvation. We cannot save ourselves. And the standards of goodness of the world will not save us, nor will they make us happy. If we tick all the box and fit all the patterns that we're given by our society to follow, it's not enough. We are made for so much greater. We are made for a greater love, both to receive and to give. And it is the perfection of love that we pursue, not the perfection of a, a postcard life. It is the perfection of love. It's going to look messy, like John the Baptist in the desert in his camel hair. It's not really pretty to look at. And in fact, none of the saints' lives are actually quite pretty to look at. There's also, there's all sorts of weird things happening to the saints. But what they're pursuing is the perfection of love. This total avail availability to the good news of the Lord who makes his way and his path in the way that he chooses into our life, in which we um, abandon our, our self-determination, our, our sort of standards of perfection, and submit to whatever he wants, to whatever he wills, to whatever he decides to do for us, in us, through us. No matter how messy this may look, but where we return constantly, time after time, to him, to make ourselves available to his call, to his grace, uh, and, and to his love. So the church is the communion of those, if you want, Beyond the bonds, the bounds of the visible church is the communion of those who make themselves available for God, enter into that relationship and receive the goodness of the good news um, in a way that transforms them and transforms the world. That's through the power of God. And that's why this baptism with the Holy Spirit is so significant, because for us, this is a mark of identity of the church. The church is the communion of the baptized. Those who have received the love of the Father and the Son are transformed by this love, even if they don't know it if they, when they're infants at baptism. But this love takes root and shapes their life. This is where we, we find that God enters the world still. God is coming into the world still through humanity in the church.